37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to episode 245 of Pixelated Paranormal. This is part three of our Stay Out of the Woods series. And with me, as always, is Presto. What's up, all you cool ghosts and goblins? Crocodins <laughs> and crocodingos? I thought maybe you forgot. Wizards and witches? Oh, look at that, man. Just keep going. See how far yeah. you can beat that horse. Like uh, that little text thread we had going tonight where I accidentally typed <laughs> CD and you're like, cassette. Yeah, yeah. People have no idea what we're talking about, and I like nope. it. <laughs> Fucking nerds. Well, the, what they do know is we've been talking about the many reasons to stay out of the woods so far. We've talked about the deer people, uh, the mystery of the mantis man. And for part three, we're actually jumping back into more familiar territory, and we're going to be doing a little chatting about the funny little forest dweller known as the gnome. And this is not the first time we've talked about gnomes. Not at all, actually. No, it's not. Back on episode 75, Cryptid Encounters Part 6, we talked about the old gnomes. Episode 220, The Crank Caverns, we talked about El Duende, which is more of, I guess, I don't know, a goblin, perhaps, but... And who could possibly forget the infamous episode 207, Late Night, Volume 4, Oh Gnome, We Didn't, where we talked about your naughty gnome novella and red lawn gnome smut, which I think I still might have a complex from. Oh... But yeah, man, this is uh, where you wanted to kind of round things out for now for our Stay Out of the Woods series, and you happen to come across a gnome story in your Bodies in the Woods book. This is going to be from Bodies in the Woods. Hello, my name is Arnold, but most people who know me call me Arnie. I have a bizarre story that many might find hard to believe but I figure I have nothing to lose by sharing it, right? It was traumatic at the time, seeing as how I lost a parent to the circumstances, but so many years have passed and I'm now more willing to talk about it openly. Back in the late 1950s, my family moved to Middlefield, Massachusetts. The town was tiny, leaving my sister... Peggy and I to question what we would even do for fun. My father was hired to help manage a church, and since he was a devoted Catholic, he did his best to remain optimistic about embracing a new life in the remote village. The property we moved to had a ton of plants and flowers and a bunch of lawn ornaments scattered throughout. Among the variety of antique statues was a set of gnomes. The paint on every one of them was chipped, especially around the facial area, making them look deranged. And it wasn't long before the strange occurrences began. Mm. I believe it was only about a week after we moved to Middlefield that 
a nest of baby bird eggs hatched in a small tree near the garden. You'd immediately hear the babies chirping when you stepped out the front door of my house. It was a delightful noise to start the morning. Our family enjoyed hearing those noises throughout the day, and we frequently notified each other whenever they seemed their loudest. I don't think we had known the baby birds for longer than a week before we found the nest lying on the ground in our garden and the babies were all dead. The strangest aspect was how none of their bodies had lacerations, but all of their necks were broken. We all wondered what would have been responsible for such an act. A predator would have left the mess. It was evident that whatever had killed them wasn't interested in eating them. Someone or something merely wanted them dead. But why? Did the culprit decide the consistent chirps were annoying? A few days after discovering the dead birds, I noticed our neighbor staring at Peggy and me through her front window. Only a part of her was visible because she was peeking past her curtain, but I could tell she had pale skin with long matted white hair. She hadn't introduced herself to anyone in our family, and her house was in shambles. Her home was almost directly across the street and looked like it hadn't undergone even the slightest bit of maintenance in God knows how many years. There was never a car parked in the driveway, which made me think that maybe she didn't own one. However, there was a detached garage to the right side of the house, which could have had a vehicle inside of it. The place took on an even creepier presence the more my sister and I noticed the woman observing us through her window. We wondered what kind of enjoyment she could be getting from that. Oddly enough, neither our parents noticed the neighbor peeking through her window at them, so they didn't seem to think anything of it when we talked about it. But Peggy and I agreed that something about the woman gave us a terrible feeling. As time went on, more and more animals started showing up dead, most of them near the garden in the front yard. Peggy and I noticed the old woman staring at us even more. Another weird thing we noticed was how there never seemed to be any lights on in the house once nighttime rolled around. It was as if she was against using electricity or maybe she couldn't afford it. In any case, it became creepier the more apparent it was that she never left the house and as far as any of us ever noticed, she never had any visitors or anyone deliver anything. How was she getting enough food to stay alive? The strange neighbor became such a popular topic of conversation around our dinner table that my father decided it was necessary to introduce himself. Peggy and I watched through one of our windows as he crossed the street with a fruit basket and a bottle of wine to give as a gift. It was so suspenseful watching him knock on the front door. He knocked several times before it became clear that nobody would answer, so he left the gifts on the doorstep before walking back to our house. After he crossed the street, Peggy and I saw the woman peek her head out of the window while her father's back was turned. We knew that she must have been in there, but confirming it made the neighbor seem even weirder than ever. What was she hiding? Why wouldn't she want to interact with my church-going father? He was one of the last people who would ever look uh, to cause any trouble for anyone. And as soon as our father entered our house and shut the door behind him, Peggy and I went running over to tell him that the creepy lady watched him. 
as he walked across the street. But he shrugged and said something about how she must have been too shy to talk to anybody. My mom theorized that the neighbor had been attacked earlier in life and her trauma dissuaded her from socializing. And I suppose that's possible, but Peggy and I suspected that she was homeless and had squatted in the abandoned home. And that might explain why she never used electricity, because she didn't have the funds. Soon, more and more dead animals started showing up in and around the garden. It seemed like we found everything from chipmunks to stray cats, but the only time I recall seeing anything missing flesh was when we found a rabbit getting picked at by what looked to be a hawk or a falcon. Given the number of other killings, I suspect the bird of prey was nothing more than a mere scavenger. I don't believe it was to blame for the death itself. It seemed like we found a new corpse every few days. Anyways, without any sign of what had broken their necks. One night, I heard Peggy shriek before ripping her bedroom door open and running down the hall to her parents' bedroom. The following morning, she told me that she had heard what sounded like someone walking around the outside of her bedroom window. The noise continued before she eventually crept across her floor to see what was happening outside. That was when she claimed to have seen a couple of small people moving about the grass and walkway within the garden. She said she only got the briefest glimpse because one of them immediately noticed her and glared at her. She said it had black eyes and looked like pure evil. Of course, I probably would have suspected the incident to be more, no more than a nightmare had our family not been finding the vast number of corpses. It wasn't until a few days later that Peggy decided that what she had seen moving about the garden was indeed the gnomes. I suppose the concept initially seemed too far-fetched, but the more she studied the miniature statues, the more she recognized the resemblance between them and whatever she had spotted that night. I don't think there are any possible way our parents could have taken her claim seriously, but neither of them was the type to respond condescendingly. The same trend of finding dead animals continued for the next few months. But my mother, sister, and I returned home one day to find my father lying on his back in the garden. His face appeared frozen in a moment of intense shock. Something about the look in his eyes indicated that he had experienced something dreadful and unexplainable during his final moments. My heartbroken mother rushed inside to summon an ambulance. When the authorities asked us if we had seen anything suspicious around our property, my sister ins insisted that it was the gnomes who killed Dad. I was the one to, who informed them of the strange lady who lived across the street, and they told us that they would question her to see if she had witnessed any foul place via her window. I remember crying while looking out Peggy's bedroom window later that night when a couple of officers approached the neighbor's house. They knocked multiple times, just like my father did, but there was no answer. We later found out from the police that the house wasn't currently owned by anyone, which was unnerving. After the police made their way inside, they failed to find anyone. But they must have discovered something somewhat interesting because the authorities came and went from the house for several consecutive days. For whatever reason, they kept their findings under wrap from us. I always felt like they found something of supernatural origins, but had strict orders not to discuss it outside the department. If that was the case, what could it have been? 
I'd still do anything for a solid explanation, and it wasn't long before my mother decided it was too hard for her to continue living in the house without my father's presence. We continued to find more dead animals until we moved into an apartment a few hours away. We hadn't noticed the old lady since a few days before my father's death, and it wasn't until we were backing out of our driveway for good that Peggy and I spotted the deranged woman seeing us off. There she is! There she is! Peggy shouted to my mom. She's back! She is there! My mother stopped at the police station on the way out of town to inform them that we noticed someone in the abandoned house, and they told her they'd send someone over there to check it out. We didn't stick around to learn whether anything came of it, but we never had any further closure regarding the mysterious incident. Unfortunately, my sister passed away a few years ago, but she never stopped insisting that she saw those garden gnomes come to life. She believed that they were responsible for our father's death. How could you prove something so utterly bizarre if that was the case? I lean more toward the theory that the old woman had something to do with it, but who was she? Or maybe the better question is, what was she? It is possible that she was a witch or some evil spirit. My sister and I experienced some of the worst feelings when she watched us from inside the creepy house. I've never heard another report quite like mine, so I started reading your book. I'm hoping that you'll one day receive a submission that might shed some light on the things my family endured during our time in Middlefield. Well, holy shit, man. That's, uh, that's interesting. We've talked about gnomes quite a bit before, and, you know, all the way from them terrorizing families on farms to, you know, luring away children and everything else, but... That one's kind of eerie just because, you know, if it's true, no one ever really saw a red-capped lawn gnome, I guess. Yeah. Kind of akin to the Revenge of the Lawn Gnomes Goosebump books, I think. Or, as I titled this episode, Attack of the Gnomes. Kind of like episode two, Attack of the Clones. (laughs) There you go. Well, you know... With all this bizarre terror, it's got to make you wonder, is there anything we could possibly do to protect ourselves from these little red-hatted terrors? Well, buddy, as a matter of fact, there is. And I bet that the tips that we are about to share probably could have helped those poor souls from that last story. Well, as we record this episode, we're at the tail end of June, which means it's almost July, folks, which is halfway to the most wonderful time of the year. And everybody's full of holiday cheer because it's almost Christmas in July, which means six more months till old Santa Claus climbs down your Mm. chimney to put presents under your tree and blah, blah, blah. Well, folks, I'm here to tell you that you're living a lie. Oh, That's because garden gnome attacks are actually going to sharply rise during the upcoming holiday season. This phenomenon is because people's affection for Santa Claus and his elves causes them to constantly confuse friendly North Pole helpers for the vicious murdering murderers known as garden gnomes, a.k.a. Gnomus Hortus. Now, gnomes enjoy a public image whitewash that passes them off as symbols of merriment and goodwill. But, those little bastards are secretly planning home invasions all over the world in a grand plan of evaceration and death. Now, 
Yeah, while we don't know why gnomes attack us, could it be for our metal or spices? Maybe they're just jealous because we're taller than them. The one thing we can <laughs> be certain of is that they all want us dead. In 2016, the Gnome Defense Hotline, based in Berlin, had recorded 1,017 confirmed attacks worldwide. Uh, you know, I googled that fact, and while I couldn't find any truth to it, maybe it's because <laughs> the government doesn't want you to know, or <laughs> it's all horseshit. But I did find about four different websites that mentioned the Gnome Defense Hotline based out of Berlin, which had a recorded average of about 1,000 confirmed Gnome attacks worldwide. So we should put a pin in that, and I will do a little more digging. There you go. So Preston, with Christmas only six months away, what should we do to prepare for the upcoming holiday season? Well, I'm glad you asked. The first thing I think we should do is forget about building snowmen. Now, I know that that's kind of like a favorite pastime for most families. It's, you know, oh, yeah. winter's first snow, so you go out there, you roll it up, uh, you put the corn pipe, the carrot for the nose, and you dress it up. But a large snowman is a perfect Trojan horse for a garden gnome to occupy before it bursts out like the movie Alien mauls you with its tiny weapons and horrific shrieks. One minute, you're placing the corncob pipe in Frosty's mouth, thinking it's the piece de resistance in your snowman creation. The next minute, you've got a tiny gnome axe embedded in your shoulder while fighting for your life on the snowy ground in your backyard. Now, we should note that one of the most underrated weapons against gnomes is a good sturdy snow, snow shovel. When outside during uh, wintertime, keep a snow shovel at on hand at all times. In fact, this touches upon a bigger tip. Keep your whip weapon mounted on the wall in every room of your home to always be ready <laughs> when those little bastards attack. You know, take the baseball bat from behind your front door and just put a big old snow shovel. Yeah. Number two, we ought to be recording unexplained footprints in the snow around our houses because gnomes will actively case and probe a location before striking. It's hard for them to get their bulbous bodies around the yard without leaving some tiny little footprints. So when you see diminutive markings in your fresh snow outside your house, please ignore your spouse's insane opinion about how they're probably just from those cute little squirrels. And you should automatically assume the worst. If you see those tracks, it's what's called a gnome close encounter of the first kind. And it means Gnome Attack D-Day, baby. It's coming up quick. It's time that you fortify the house and put a cap on the old chimney. Now, if you hear something coming down the chimney during the holidays, instead of pulling out some milk and cookies for old Santa Claus, pull out your boomstick so you can blow your lawn gnome intruder's heads straight out the bowels of hell, just like Ashley Williams. And like Ash would say, shoot first. Think never. Now, number three on things you can do to prevent lawn gnome attacks is take note of unusual Christmas tree ornaments. Normal tree decorations are fine, but stick with shiny ball-shaped ornaments, garland, lights, and the star on the top of the tree. But here's the problem. The second you start adding all kinds of unusual adornments, 
Then the tree becomes a great opportunity for those small bastards to hang itself on the tree and pretend just to be another harmless item. Then, when you come close to pose for that adorable family photo with all your purposely bad sweaters, that's when the bearded agent of death leaps from the branch to pierce your flesh, <laughs> fleshy neck. The last thing you think is how ironic it is that a gnome used your own holiday garland to strangle you to death. Now, instead of lighting Hanukkah candles, go plastic, electric lights. If you have an open flame in the house, a garden gnome will use the light as his miniature Molotov cocktail right before chucking it <laughs> at your loved ones. This is absurd. <laughs> Number four, folks, if you survived the menorah Molotov cocktails, protect the eggnog. That's right, folks. Garden gnomes are highly adept at potions and alchemy. An easy way for them to take over the house is to simply poison the humans inside. So, on that note, make sure you're always keeping an eye on the old punch bowl and eggnog supplies. Brave individuals have been known to turn this attack backwards on the attackers. This is how you do it. Next to an open eggnog bowl that you've been mistakenly leaving unattended, you gotta place a mug of your finest ale and some juicy, juicy gumdrops, both of which, naturally, you're gonna lace with rat poison. Just keep them away from your pets, folks. But when the fat little gnome comes to kill you, they'll smell the sweet scent of tasty goodies and chow down only to die minutes later. Then, when you come across the dead gnome on your dining room table, we might suggest the gruesome yet effective strategy of hanging him outside for other gnomes to see so they'll promptly crap their tiny trousers and hopefully leave you the hell alone like some yuletide Vlad the Impaler. Mm-hmm. But last but not least, be wary of Christmas lights in the wrong locations. One precursor to a gnome horde attack is dancing lights that catch your attention as they reflect around the room. This is an especially acute problem during the holidays because you might mistake this telltale sign as a mere holiday light that another family has put up in a different area. Just as you're thinking to yourself, I should really thank Sally for putting up those new lights that project mirth and goodwill, garden gnomes rappled down the ceiling and attack your head while others shoot coordinated mini arrows into your ankles. At that point, you're fucked. <laughs> What other precursors to full-fledged assaults include the following. Unexplained sawdust around the house, the smell of pipe smoke, the power going out, and missing pets. Just like in our real-life story from earlier. Jeez, buddy. Yeah. Well, you know, these last two episodes have been pretty serious, but uh, I don't know. A little levity kind of loosened things up a little bit. Now, as I was mentioning in the last two episodes, I also picked up a book recently called Goblin Proofing One's Chicken Coop by Reginald Bakley. In this book, there's all sorts of great tips on how to goblin-proof your chicken coop, fight off warding trolls, know how to identify flowering fairies, and much, much more. Now, as it turns out, this book is worth a deep dive of its own, but I would like to share, to finish out the episode, an excerpt on gnoming. 
Springtime means gnoming, how to proper outfit your hunting party, indications of gnome life, and techniques for riflemen, among other things. So... It's time for Gnome Hunting 101 from Pixelated Paranormal. Spring has sprung and now that means it's warming up outside. So to a lot of people, this time of year it means gnoming. Crafty and fast, gnomes are the season's most rewarding catches. Although the gnomish population has dropped slightly in the recent years, seasoned hunters should take note as not to deter themselves from bagging a gnome or two, but rather this could be an incentive. Gnomes are far more a nuisance than a help to people on the countryside. They're known to befriend woodland creatures and invite them into the field or the garden to eat freely in your garden or your fields. And after they attack your bounty, they're known to leave behind troublesome latticeworks of burrows, undermining the integrity of the forest floor and also your gardens. These create nasty traps for the hooves of horses or your puppy or even that idiot brother-in-law. But if anyone needs an ultimate rationale for taking up arms against these diminutive devils, then I urge you to consider wonderfully dark, earthy tastes of gnomish meat. A dish combining mushrooms, freshly picked vegetables, and gnome is surely one of summertime's greatest pleasures. Now, as an intelligent gnomer, you should outfit yourself with the proper equipment. Stealth is the essential when tracking gnomes, so make sure your first priority is sourcing a quiet pair of thin-soled stocking boots. Gnomes gravitate towards temperate climates and wooded habitats shunning swamps, so if you needn't bother for those hip waders, instead a simple thin-soled boot would do. You should wear drab-colored clothing, keeping with the terrain of which you'll be hunting. Dull browns and greens usually do the trick, so Preston, if you and I were a gnome, we would be absolutely fucked. Mm-hmm. Next up, you should choose your weapons carefully because your quarry stands no taller than one cubit when full grown, so it's easy to overestimate the required firepower needed. This can be a grave mistake resulting in you bringing along an implement which will blast this tasty fairy into pixie dust, so it's better to first ask yourself, Preston, what kind of gnomer am I? If you think yourself a cunning stalker, instead you might just be served by carrying a powerful slingshot. A patient archer is paired nicely with a precise crossbow. For those quick brutes among the gnomish set, perhaps a potent club could get the job done. Although rifles too are categorically out of the question for beginners, but as I will later explain, the skilled marksman can bag a gnome with a rifle without even piercing the delectable creature's skin. I didn't realize you could eat gnomes. <laughs> no. A final essential bit of equipment is an elephant gun, for reasons that may be explored at a later date. Now, gnoming hunting parties are best limited to two or just one hunter and possibly a reliable hound. You gotta set yourself up near the entrance of the gnome's house, 
which you can quickly distinguish by seeing a doorway to the intertwined spreading roots of large oak trees. Look for shrunken examples of furniture recalling the arts and crafts movements littering the front of these roots. Dawn and dusk are the preferred hours for your grim vigil, as it is just before sunrise that the gnome leaves his house to go to the wood shop and nightfall before he returns. Now, gnomes have an olfactory sense nearly as sharp as that of a hound, so the successful gnomer will take care to smear his skin and clothing with generous amounts of Les Audois de la Forêt, a.k.a. the smells of the forest. You're going to want to mix some elderberries, broken up toadstools, and maybe even a little deer stag droppings to make a thick paste, rubbing it all over yourself and any weapons you may have carried with you for the hunt. This will optimize your chance of evading their keen nostrils. Now, when a day or a night best suits you in betwixt when the gnome leaves his house and comes home from the shop, the wisest gnomer of the woods, smeared in elderberry paste and slingshot at the ready, will observe the telltale sign of a gnome as he saunters down the forest path, hips a-swinging. That sign is none other than the gnome's conical red hat bobbing up and down amongst the plants of the forest. Each gnome wears this distinctive headgear in all periods of wakefulness and sleep. It is this self-same cap that will prove to be our antagonist's undoing, for it shines like a crimson beacon atop his head. A well-placed stone or crossbow bolt or some deft grudgeful work should knock the life out of any healthy gnome. Take care to aim for the creature's head and hit it hard. It's no secret the gnome's cranium is thick and centuries ago inspired the now popular term gnome skull to indicate a person of slow wit due to a thick head. Any rifle-wielding sharpshooter must take a different approach though because any bullet fired will be sure to split their skull. What's the use of spending all your time smearing stag ferments all over your body if you have nothing to show for yourself other than the mangled pulp of a fairy that may not have much to offer of sustenance? No, the marksman's technique is subtle, sporting, and often offers more options for the successful gnomer. This is known as the concussion shot, of course, and in my opinion, this is the only way to hunt a gnome. The trickiest bit about concussion shot is to set it up properly, and it requires that you first tree the gnome. Although treeing a gnome may seem like a lot of work, your efforts will be rewarded in that you may, by way of a successful concussion shot, bag a gnome live and uninjured. Gnomes are excellent climbers, that's no secret, so given a chance to select between a morning spent in the jaws of your hound or the branches of a nearby oak tree, they'll pick the latter every time. But because gnomish bellies are fat and gnomish arms are short, their climbing technique leaves them laid flat against the tree trunk, gripping the bark tightly with their thick little sausage fingers. It's here you'll take your opportunity. Aim to just the side of a gnome's head, and boom, your shot should hit the tree. Even a strong gnome will fall immediately and be collected in a bag once it hits the ground. For when the concussion shot is used against squirrels or smaller 
arboreal creatures, it will kill them instantly. For a gnome's fortitude being great, however, it will merely knock the gnome unconscious by the bullet's reverberating impact on the tree, subsequently its skull will then rattle as it falls to the ground. The fall shouldn't break any of your prey's sturdy bones, though. Death does a double take and leaves the gnome completely intact with no ill effects beyond an aching head once it awakes. Of course, the results of a botched concussion shot can be disastrous. If your aim has been tainted by a few early morning whiskeys and you actually score a bullet to the gnome's skull, you'll splatter his head like the perfect kill shot. If you hit too far to either side of the gnome's head and your shot misses the tree altogether, it could possibly connect with another member of your gnoming party. Once bagged, gnomes must be stored if they are not to be served at that night's dinner. Seasoned gnomers know that you can hang a gnome in a cellar for up to a week, or they can be kept in a freezer for thawing later in the year. Keeping a live gnome, however, is trickier. You gotta hurry home with your catch before it comes to from the concussion shop. Many a hunter has shaken his head in dismay after a gnome woke up and slipped out of the bag using their evil gnome magic. Gnomes are usually clever riddlers and are not above using such trickery to fool the unwitted sharpshooter. Don't be deceived. Get your gnome home, shackle him to the cellar before the creature opens its treacherous little eyes. Small iron bands and chains will keep the gnome from using any of its magic, let alone digging its way out of the prison of stone. If you have been fortunate enough to catch a brace of gnomes, or if you slowly amass a collection, a damp barrel with a removable lid may be more convenient to store the wretched little beasts. Feed the gnomes radishes and beer and they'll remain docile no matter how many of them you cram into that barrel. Gnomes freshly deceased, be they from field or barrel, must be drawn and skinned before they are fit for cooking. Their clothing, especially their hat, makes a decent conversation starter, but for goodness sake, wash them all thoroughly before displaying. You've got no idea where these little bastards have been. Unscrupulous hunters turn over gnome beards on the black market, but I find this practice loathsome. Even for the more comprehensively boiled beard is still prone to harboring pests, so handle yours with care and dispose of it as you would a vermin. So these tips and many more can be found in the book Goblin Proofing One's Chicken Coop. But as I dug deeper into this great book by Reginald Bakley, I discovered it should be a deep dive of its own in a future episode, so that is where I will leave you, dear listener, for now. Alright, buddy, it's not our first foray into gnomes, so no. I think that's where we ought to cut it. And if you're wanting some uh, more How to Survive a Garden Gnome Attack... Check out the book by Chuck Sambuccino. You can get it on Amazon. So, Barnes and Noble and IndieBound. Hell yeah. Gnomes are a little bit smart. Benign appearance belies murderous intent. Spellbinding flashing lights are a prelude to an attack. And those little bastards will steal unattended tools and household utensils to attack you. <laughs> Don't crafty, trust them. 
crafty little bastards. Yeah. Well, we definitely want to give a shout out to a couple different books. Bodies in the Woods from Tom Lyons. I Know What I Saw by Linda S. Godfrey and the aforementioned Goblin Proofing One's Chicken Coop by Reginald Bakley. Boy, howdy, that's the most reading we've done for three short episodes. Woo! <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think we earned ourselves a break. Um, something I thought about before recording, and I'll just include this anywho, um, we're going to be switching over from Mark's Pixelated Sausage Network onto our own in the upcoming weeks. So there may be a short period, maybe a week um, or two, that we might miss an episode getting everything set up. We'll definitely make sure to mention that on the social medias. Hopefully we won't see any kind of interruption, but there might be a week, um, possibly after this episode, where we don't post anything as I get everything geared up to start taking over the hosting duties myself. But until next time, please follow us on the social medias, Instagram, at PXLParanormal, Facebook, The Pixelated Paranormal Podcast, Preston, any news on YouTube? Fuck, dude, we got one more subscriber. We're now sitting at 187, up Ooh. from 186. Hell so do yourself yeah. a favor. If you haven't checked out YouTube, get over there, like, subscribe, share with all your friends. Um, you know, we got some videos that have like 2,000 views. We have other videos that have uh, seven views, three views. Ooh, <laughs> Space Jam, go wash your hands. Episode 137 only got three views so far, so maybe... I don't know. Go give that one some love. I enjoyed that one. That was, uh, gosh, what was that? The Conspiracy of Michael Jordan and Space Jam? Yeah. Our uh, episode 151, 40 year anniversary, only has two views. So. Yikers. Yeah. Well, people just don't know what they're missing on the old YouTubes, man. <laughs> yeah. Also, I think on YouTube specifically, people are looking for very, very specific things, and that's how our show probably pops up to those who haven't subscribed. So, yeah, that 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 is true because like the abduction to the ninth planet um, has like three hundred views, and um, the exorcism of uh, Roland Dole has uh, like. 202 views and then it keeps going up so depending on what it is um we got another 500 views on the vertical plane now we're up to 2500 views on it so i mean that one just keeps <laughs> going and going so yeah it's just absurd <laughs> yeah but hey buddy we'll take it definitely definitely and as always if you need a beard if you want a beard if you want to grow a beard that won't get you confused with a bastard lawn gnome, then you need to do yourself a favor and go over to BigDobsBeerBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. Pick yourself up some scents like Bay Rum, Fresh Citrus, Sweet Tobacco, Mint, and Classic. He's got Beard Oil, he's got Beard Balm, he's got Tattoo Bombs, he's got Soap, he's got Combs, Hats, I mean, you name it, this guy has it, and Alan's just one hell of a dude, so go over and give Dobbs some love, so. Hell yeah. And if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and see our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang at CD Trade Post, Pawnee, and Seneca. Alrighty, until next time, cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. 
Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.